make sure that we get through them all. Okay. Um, so you guys kind of, again, just to reiterate why we're tormenting you with these uh, lectures, just trying to get you guys ready for the in-service and then ultimately for your written board exam. Um, so some people have been chatting with me about it. Just make sure you're doing, none of these questions are from the peer series, so make sure you're doing those on your own. And then, um, you know, like I said, it's kind of something new, so if you have any feedback, just let me know. Um, with that being said, let's jump into our first question. So Juan, maybe do you want to try the first one? Know that right away after your physical exam? No, not necessarily. Not all the time, right? Not all the time. And uh, the other thing is, it if they're you know if they're constipated, blocked, opioids could make it worse. So maybe, maybe not. Okay, well, that's reasonable that opioids could potentially, if they're having distension or something, make things a little worse. So that's a thought of all those choices. Which one are you gonna write down on your paper? Let's see. C? Okay. Um, you were actually right the first time. It was D. Um, so this question is, this is like such a hotbed of conversation maybe a couple years ago. And remember, the questions always lag behind by a couple years, right? So everybody was like, don't give pain medication. You're obscuring my abdominal exam. And all the literature says fooey on that. It makes no difference whatsoever. So make your patients comfortable because that's, one of the questions they have to fill out is how well did we address their pain, right? So don't make them sit there and be uncomfortable thinking that it's going to change your surgeon's physical exam down the road because it's not going to. So yeah, this, so why are the rest of them not right? So anti-medic should be avoided because it alters physical exam findings. We're just, they're talking about pain medication there, but they just inserted anti-medic. So that choice is wrong. Vasoconstricting medications among the elderly, they're thinking they have worse perfusion, so could you make them worse by giving them a vasoconstricting medication? But I will challenge you that if you have a patient in sepsis, and even if they're elderly, you're going to have to give them something to improve their status. So although you should think about these things, you shouldn't avoid it. It's not a contraindication. Um, patients with fever should re um, receive early antibiotics. That choice probably, I think, sounds the most reasonable of all the wrong choices. Um, certainly, we're thinking, you know, fever, abdominal pain, but you need to, you shouldn't just shotgun your antibiotics. You need to um, do more of a workup before you can make this decision. So, the correct answer is D, judicious use of opioids. And this is kind of a little off track, but since that question kind of classified all the uh, anti-emetics together, I just wanted to quickly go through. We seem to use Zofran all the time, and it's just because we're creatures of habit, I think, and I'm dating myself, but back when I was a resident, it wasn't actually first line because it was still so expensive at that point that the hospital didn't want you to use it unless you had tried something else and failed first. So why do we like it? Well, because it doesn't have as many side effects, or at least scary side effects, as the other ones, except our good friends at the uh, Food and Drug Administration just decided to put a warning on it about QT prolongation. So make sure you're remembering that and then ignore it like I do. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so yes, this is sort of hot off the press is this QT prolongation for Zofran. But, um, so there's a ton of antiemetics. They all, they work on so many different receptors. Um, the anticholinergics like scopalamine, I don't know if anyone's ever been like on a boat. I went to Antarctica. I used um, scopolamine. Oh my god, the side effects. Don't ever give it me scopolamine again. I like, you're trying to read and you can't accommodate, so you're like, you can't read anything. And 
Like I had to like go to sleep with a lifesaver in my mouth because my mouth was so dry. It was terrible. Anyways, yeah, I don't like scopolamine, but it's good for motion sickness. Um, the dopamine antagonists. So these are like your phenothiazines, your compazine, your thorazine, and also reglin. So the big one with this is it causes that dystonic reaction and their extrapyramidal side effects. Um, so you have to be careful with these. Um, compazine, I use it. I still use it with my migraines, but um, the hospital didn't have it forever, so I guess I've just gotten kind of lazy and don't use it really for anything anymore. But that's really the only scenario that I find myself using it in. I don't know about you, Megan, if you are you, yeah. Um, I put Reglan down in its own uh, separate, first of all, it's not a phenothiazine, so it goes in its own separate category anyway, but just something about Reglan is it also, it has some activity with ACT, um, acetylcholine, so it's going to also stimulate the GI smooth muscle, so in your patients with like gastroparesis, our favorite patients to take care of, right, you can actually consider this agent because it's going to actually help contractility. So just something separate about Reglan than the other ones. Um, patients who get like the, like one was saying, the side effects, that opioid response where everything kind of, the GI tract decides it's not going to work anymore after you expose it to opioids, Reglan may be something that may be, may be beneficial there as well. But you have to balance it with the side effects. Um, then there's the antihistamines. So Benadryl, Meclizine, um, Fettergen, um, these are another class you can use as well. These are the ones that are going to be the most sedating. Um, they're also really good for kind of the motion sickness um, side of things, but another alternative. And then obviously Zofran is a serotonin receptor antagonist. I didn't even put on here, but there's benzos, which have weak antiemetic activity. There's the cannabinoids, I love that word. Um, <laughs> Marinol is a, is a synthetic that you can use for um, uh, nausea and vomiting. Not that I'm giving you that as a first-line agent. Um, and that's about, so those are just steroids also. Um, dexamethasone has um, some anti-emetic properties, although no one understands why, and you can actually use it in conjunction with some of the other agents to enhance their effectiveness. So Anyways, it's just a little side note, but when you're considering antiemetics, I know we all prescribe Zofan first, but there is some consideration to be given to the other ones. Um, question two, Dr. Weber has a mouthful of food, so I'll skip him. Dina, do you want to take question two? Sure. And I'll really take from the history so it sounds like they're giving us a history of atherosclerotic heart disease, so we have some predisposing factors for clotting-ish maybe, and then congestive heart failure, which means they're not pumping or their pump isn't working very well. Um, and so I'm going to go with mesenteric ischemia. Perfect. That's exactly what they wanted you to come up with for all the right reasons. <clears throat> So CHF, it's a low flow state, so patients are going to be predisposed to having just bad blood flow to the, through the splanchnics and into the mesentery. So they want, this, they want you to come up with mesenteric ischemia. This is one of those questions where you really have to be careful because an elderly patient in general is, you know, at risk for cholecystitis because <laughs> it's one of the most common causes. Um, Cecovolvulus, less common. Perforated peptic ulcer, less common. But what they're giving you with the past medical history is they're trying to point you towards mesenteric ischemia. Um, <clears throat> just because they mentioned volvulus, take just a couple of seconds to talk about um, volvulus. This is cecovolvulus. It's less common than sigmoid volvulus. They talk about a kidney bean-shaped loop that points towards the left um, on the x-ray. Um, obviously, the management is surgery. This tends to happen in younger patients, whereas sigmoid volvulus, those are the older folks, the nursing home folks. Um, and if you needed another reason not to run marathons, this is just another reason. Not only for your feet, but for your cecum. Uh-huh, yeah. It's associated. So I've, when I was going through questions, they'll actually give you like a marathon runner presents with abdominal pain and he had a sigmoid volvulus. Anyhow. Yes. So just a, a 
a little side note, if yeah, you will. I don't remember how fast it was afterwards. Um, <laughs> just doesn't sound like a good way to end your day. 26 miles and a kidney bean shaped cecum. Um, all right, so sigmoid volvulus. This is apparently supposed to be a coffee bean, not a kidney bean. If anyone can tell the difference between the two of them, then you are better than I am. They both look like beans to me. But anyhow, um, so it's an inverted U-shaped um, <clears throat> dilation of the sigmoid colon. It tends to point into the pelvis versus towards the left. <clears throat> Looks like a coffee bean instead of a kidney bean, apparently. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, you can do a barium enema and you might see like a, they call it a bird beak deformity where you can see where it's twisted on itself. It's going to narrow down. They call it a bird beak um, deformity, just kind of a, an association you should remember for your questions. Um, and then management is either a sigmoidoscopy to decompress it or they actually have to go in and do a um, sigmoid resection. So these tend to happen more commonly in our older folks, nursing home folks, psychiatric patients sometimes who have a history of uh, chronic constipation and bowel problems. Okay. Um, question three. Shannon, do you want to try question three? Which of the following is the best statement about etiology and treatment of, oh, God, Ogilvy's, Ogilvy's, whatever. Ogilvy's. I'm clearly going to do well in this question. I've been around for my life. Immediate laparotomy is needed for reduction of the Use of you know, sticking it has been shown to be an effective treatment. That's something terrible idea. It's been obstructed. Variabinimus have been shown to relieve the colonic obstruction or the condition can be misdiagnosed as renal colonic. I have no clue what this is, but if I'm going to pick one on its test, I'm going to go with D. D? Yes. Okay. Um, I don't know what it is. Ogilvy syndrome is pseudo obstruction. With colonic distension. In that case, maybe B would be the answer. And okay. Would be <laughs> B is the right answer. <laughs> All right. So Ogilvy syndrome, it's pseudo obstruction. It's acting like an obstruction, but there's really no obstruction. Okay. Um, the abdominal series is going to show you a big distended, um, you know, colon. Um, I gave Nistigmine once to uh, ICU patient with this, and he put out 10 meters. Yeah, so it's it's apparently very effective. Um, yes. Yes, so right before you paralyze them, apparently, there's a lot of GI motility um, involved. Anyhow, so... <laughs> so there is... Um, there's no indication for surgery because you just there's nothing to operate on. This is a motility issue problem. So you're using neostigmine to try to enhance motility. I was told, I looked up the dose, it's 2 milligrams IV, Dr. Swan, maybe, I don't remember if you recall the dose that you gave. Um, but it's basically a parasympathomimetic drug, and it just it increases, it stimulates that contractility. And apparently, people have a lot of poop. Okay. <laughs> Matt, do you want to try question four? Sure. <clears throat> Which of the following is the most common obstructive cause of dysphagia? See, zincor step tubulum, esophageal stricture, secondary to gastroesophageal reflux disease, neoplasm, or Schatzky's ring? Hmm. Obstructive cause of dysphagia. Mm. There's just really no secret to this one. You just have to. I like I always like going with cancer, so I'll go see neoplasm. Okay. Um, it seems like when we see patients in the emergency department, cancer would be the right <coughs> choice, right? I feel like some days that's all I'm telling people. Um, but actually, it's it's pretty rare. It's a pretty rare cause. Um, Shotsky's ring is actually the most common. 10 to 15% of the population walking around has them. Who knew, right? Yeah. Okay. So now you know. There's your educational portal for today. Um, okay. Alyssa, do you want to try question five? Sure. Which of the following statements is true regarding bowel obstruction? A, the most common cause of large bowel obstruction are surgical adhesions and hernias. B, the most common cause of small bowel obstruction are carcinomas and strictures. C, patients with small bowel obstruction have a step ladder appearance on plain films. D, intestinal pseudo-obstruction typically involves the small bowel. 
So I like adhesions. I'm not sure about hernias for large bowel in A. B I don't like. C C sounds good to me. You like C? I like C. Good. I like C too. Um, so most common causes of large bowel obstruction is cancer and strictures. Okay? They switch these two. The most common cause of small bowel obstructions is surgical adhesions and hernias. Okay? So basically all they did was take the most commons and reverse them. Um, absolutely small bowel obstruction has that stepladder appearance, the air fluid levels on the x-ray. It's one of the few conditions that x-ray is still useful in. Um, and here we go, Ogilvy syndrome again, making its rearing its ugly head. Um, it does not involve the small ball; it is the large ball. Um, by the way, are you going to correct me when I say your name wrong? No, it's Elisa. I've yes. Never corrected All right, start correcting me. I'm so sorry. God, I like it comes out of my mouth, and I'm like, don't no, I did it again. Um, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. All right. Sorry about that. Okay. So um, when you're looking, I don't know, I look at abdominal x-rays and I'm just like, I don't know, it's just, it's poop and air, right? Um, but there are differences. So small bowel has lines that go all the way across, right? So this is dilated small bowel right here. Does anyone know what those are called? <clears throat> the lines that extend all the way through the small bowel? Word well. Hmm? Yes. I don't know about the semi part, but the pleca is circularis. Yay, good for you. Um, and then large bowel has these little lines that don't go all the way across. So just when you're looking at bowel, be looking for lines. <clears throat> um, and here's your kind of stepladder appearance. This is a small bowel obstruction here. This is a large bowel obstruction. So those are kind of the differences you can see in the two of them when you're looking at x-rays. Stepladders and big dilated colon. Okay. Erica, do you want to do question six? Sure. Which of the following treatments is recommended for inguinal inguinal hernia? Mechanical compression with a pessary in women should be attempted to reduce the need for operative management. The failed manual reduction is an indication for emergent surgical repair. C, only non-operative management is recommended for elderly patients. The operative management is the standard for indirect hernias, where, whereas direct inguinal hernias are best treated with antibiotics and pain medication. So um, I think I would go with B as the best choice. Good. B, B is the correct answer. Um, so mechanical compression with a pessarian woman? No. The only thing I've ever used, seen pessaries used for is not related to the GI tract. Different tract. Um, so failed manual reduction is the correct answer. If you can't get it back in, it's a surgical problem. Um, be careful of any answers that start with onlys or alwayses or nevers or because they're, I don't know, those seem to sort of raise a red flag. Only non-operative management is recommended for elderly patients. We may wish that, but unfortunately if they have strangulated dead bowel, elderly folks like everyone else is going to have to go to the operating room to take care of it. So it's just not the right choice. Operative management is the standard for indirect, whereas direct hernias are best treated with antibiotics and pain medication. Again, they're just kind of steering you all in the wrong direction. It's really only related to the reducibility of the hernia. So, Okay, so the hernia crowd. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, a couple of tidbits you should know about hernias. Inguinal hernias can be direct or indirect. Direct comes through Hasselbeck's triangle, which punches basically right through the abdominal wall. Okay, so direct. I don't know how you guys go about remembering it, but that's how I remember it. Indirect uses the ring that was there during embryonic development and sneaks through that, um, that ring. They affect men greater than women. Um, for direct hernias, strangulation is actually fairly uncommon. Indirect have a higher risk of strangulation, and they're actually the most common hernia in men and women, to be honest. 
Femoral hernias, they come out below the inguinal ligament. Women are affected more than men. High risk of strangulation. Who had this patient? Sharam, Dr. Lafavor just had an obturator hernia the other day. I've never had one. But your little old ladies who have hip pain, apparently not only can they have fractures, but you better rule them out for an obturator hernia. Um, high risk of strangulation. I was going to say the nice thing about that is oftentimes... I, I mean, I just CT every little old lady that has hip pain. And that's how they found it. And that's how you're going to find it. And so you don't have to be, like, just pounding yourself in the head. Like, how am I going to diagnose this? Like, yeah. you're going to you're gonna CT the lady, and she's, you're going to see it on CT. Yeah. Something to consider in, like, I had... I have seen a couple where, you know, they come in and, you know, when they, like, fall down and go boom, the story, the workup is very easy. Um, but it's like this, oh, my hip hurts, and they really don't have any significant trauma. And you're like, what the heck? Well, put obturator hernia on your, on your radar. Somewhere in the back of your head. Umbilical hernia? I have no idea. Yeah, that was one case that I heard about. that I'm not sure I'm doing public exams on all of my little old ladies who fall down. Um, but it sounds like an excellent job for the residents. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, so umbilical hernias. In kids, they're congenital. They usually resolve. They close. Um, they go away on their own, um, especially the African-American population. Um, very common in those kids. Um, in adults, they tend to be more related to ascites, obesity, that kind of stuff. I actually had one of my favorite cases recently was, Shanna, was this one you and me? The guy who had the umbilical hernia and was just spraying acidic oh, fluid from yes. his belly button. It was awesome. It was very cool. And I was like, okay, I'll hold here. Can you go call a surgeon? Um, it was really fun. Anyhow, a little different twist on an umbilical hernia. but. Yes, exactly. All right. Um, so again, this is just Hesebeck's triangle. The um, the in the inferior epigastric vessels, the border of the rectus muscle, and then the um, inguinal ligament. That's kind of your landmarks there, and that's where your direct inguinal hernia will pop through. Um, and just when you thought you had heard enough hernias to last a lifetime, what is a, a Spigelian hernia? Anybody know? It is not the spaghetti hernia, and you do not get it from eating too much. It is spigelian hernia. And you said something. What did you say, Dina? There's, like, straight lines or something through. I don't know. I just remember something about a semi-lunar something. All right. It's exactly that. <laughs> Unbelievable. That's why she's chief, boys and girls. Um, so, yeah. So, it's a... It's, a uh, hernia through the abdominal muscles, but it's at the, you know how the abdominal muscles on netters has all those like little muscles divided by fibrous bands? So yeah, semilunar or arcuate line, just lateral to the rectus muscle, and that's where it pops through. So when you get this reading on your CT scan, you can impress your surgical colleagues by saying, yes, he has a spigelian hernia, and actually know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> He's got a what? Um, okay. <laughs> so just in summary, our hernias, you can actually get hiatal hernia. I didn't even include that one. That's where the stomach herniates up into the chest. Para-umbilical, umbilical. Direct is through Hesselbeck's triangle. Indirect comes through the canal. The obturator can kind of make sense that you would be able to feel that on a pelvic exam, kind of hiding back there in the obturator canal. Femoral hernias, more common in women, and then spigelian, so off laterally a little bit, okay? All right. Shahina, you want to try question seven? Okay, sure. 45-year-old male presented with a painless lump in the region of his groin that is diagnosed as a reducible inguinal hernia, which is following as not a component of the management for this patient. Um, and from the do you want me to read them out loud? Sorry. You don't, you don't have to. Oh, okay. Everyone has to. Okay, fine. Everyone has to. One of the patients that the condition is not like threatening. <laughs> <laughs> a consultation with seven is advisable to consider elective repair. 
B, tell the patient to avoid heavy lifting and excessive straining with bowel movements. C, recommend minimizing sexual intercourse as it may aggravate the hernia and necessitate emergency surgery. Just tell them that. So just when you thought the hard part was figuring out where each of them was and who's more prone to getting what type, now you have to figure out what to tell them um, when you send them home. Minimizing stuff, not a component. Because I think yes, it would be C. <laughs> so yeah. You can have a hernia and have all the sex you want. It's really not a contraindication. It's fine. Oh, it's yeah. not. Okay. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And hence, the important reason to make sure you remember what the stem of your question is when you're going to put your answer down. Because um, it is definitely you're choosing which one is not. So, Dr. Kim, do you remember your patient yesterday, the lady? who got, this is totally unrelated to hernias, but it's such a great story I'm sharing with everyone. The lady who had um, sudden onset headache after she um, had an orgasm. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> sex can be very dangerous. Um, so, I got signed out this patient. It was like a 50-year-old lady who had a headache, sudden onset, two weeks ago during an orgasm. During an orgasm. So, right, we're like... I'm, I'm cracking up. I'm like crying tears as Dr. Langdorf is telling me about this story. And he's like, we're getting a CT angio, whatever, it's going to be negative, and then send her home. So the CT report comes back, and they're like, questionable maybe might be something aneurysmal at like the takeoff of the MCA or something. And so Dr. Kim and I discussed this case, and we're like, well, that's what you were looking for. you got to take the next step, right? This questionable maybe whatever. So neurosurgery comes down, sees the patient, admits the patient, does a lumbar puncture, and she has 283 reds and xanthochromia. Whoa. True subarachnoid hemorrhage. True subarachnoid hemorrhage. She had had them intermittently since then, I think. Maybe. The story, she had had headaches kind of intermittently since then. Yeah. Oh, she's in the OR getting it clipped. There you go. So I digress. Not a GI question, but good story nonetheless. Okay. <laughs> What's that? I'm sorry? There you go. I've now thought about every patient with a headache I've sent home, and I'm like, clearly I am missing a lot more aneurysms. Anyhow. <laughs> um, yeah, great story, which is why neurosurgery was like, all right, we'll, we'll admit, and it was positive. Okay. Uh, Austin, would you mind doing question eight? What did you decide on? B is in boy. You got it right. Okay, so this, I think this conversation comes up pretty frequently in the emergency department, which is why I put this question on there, because we drain a lot of abscesses, but some attendings, me in particular, are really particular when we're talking about abscesses in this particular region, um, or another region, if you will. Um, so the only ones that you should be draining in the emergency department is isolated perianal abscesses. Anything that has the potential to extend into the canal, into the deep spaces, needs to be drained by a surgeon. Now, I have seen them come down and do some of these sort of aggressive INDs in the emergency department, but ideally, the textbooks would tell you all the rest of them need to be taken to the OR and drained there. So this is, if you can imagine, um, the rectum, anus. So perianal, these are the ones that we want you guys to go after. That's the only one we want you to go after. Um, anything, if you do a rectal exam and you can feel something bulging into the wall of the rectum, don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Call a surgeon. Ischial rectal. These are the ones that are a little harder. Sometimes these get so big, they actually extend down to the skin here, and so you can feel an induration, um, you know, on the buttocks area. But, again, these are... If they have a lot of pain with defecation and they're having high fevers and their exam is really consistent, you know, with something pretty nasty going on, 
you should not be draining these. Most of the time, these, you'll feel an area, a fluctuant area, like a regular abscess, right, that you can go after and drain. But if it's an ischial rectal, it tends to be just really <coughs> indurated over the buttocks area, or the gluteal area, and you can't really feel a nice um, uh, abscess that you can go after. So this is the reason why a lot of your attendings will make you get imaging studies on these folks before we decide if it's drainable in the ED. So just something to keep in mind. Okay. Okay. Um, has anyone not gone yet? Have you, Pam, do you want to take this one? Minimum ventricle count in acidic fluid unit for diagnosis of SVP. Um, yeah, this is just kind of bread and butter. This is just a number that you need to log into your brain and keep it there. It's the important things to consider in this question is they're talking about neutrophil count, not total white blood cell count. Neutrophil count, 250. White blood cell count gets a little trickier. Total white blood cell count, some of the numbers will give 1,000, some will give 500, but don't remember any of that. Just remember neutrophils and 250, and you should be good to go. Um, interestingly, 30 to 40% of gram stains in SBP are negative. Gram stains and cultures are negative. So if you have a negative culture, they actually recommend repeating the tap in a week and culturing it again. I don't know. Anyhow, not that we ever really do that in the emergency department, but just keep in mind that your gram stains and cultures are not very sensitive. So really, you should be treating based off the, the initial cell counts that you get. Okay. All right, Sharice, do you want to try this one? Which of the following is now part of the criteria for the patients with acute pancreatitis on the mission? Good. It is A. Uh, blood pressure is not part of Ransom's criteria. Does anyone, can anyone shout out Ransom's criteria? Do you guys know what they are? I'll give you a hint. These three are Ransom's criteria, so you can't shout those ones out. Is there any other, any other ones that you guys can remember? So yeah, Ranson's criteria. So what does Ranson's criteria actually tell you? It's a predictor of mortality, right? So that's what you're trying to use all of this good information for. So age greater than 55, uh, elevated blood sugar greater than 200, white count greater than 16,000, ALT greater than 250, and LDH greater than 700. 700? That seems high. Anyhow, all right. Um, so not entirely helpful for us in the emergency department, um, but it helps predict who's going to have more complications upstairs. So if you've got a person with a whole bunch of these factors, they may be an ICU admission versus a telemetry admission or something like that, you know. Um, after 48 hours, they give you a whole other list of qualifications um, that can predict mortality. So they start looking at calcium, hematocrit falls, um, hypoxemia, if the BUN is increasing, if there's a base deficit, or if they're sequestering fluids greater than six liters. I don't even know how one goes about measuring the sequestration of six liters of fluid, but anyhow. Um, so if you have zero to two of these criteria, you have a 2% mortality. If you have three or four, you have a 15% um, risk of mortality. Um, score of five to six is 40% mortality, and a score of seven to eight is 100% mortality. So I think that's kind of the reason that we, we sort of pimp you guys on Ransom's criteria all the time. Not so much that it's useful in the emergency department, but you just really need to have an increased awareness of the potential outcome for badness in these folks. So more than two of these criteria, and they have a 15% mortality, which is pretty significant when you think about it. Did you send them to the unit then if you had like two or three of those? I, I think you need to, you know, if you have... 15% If you have three of these, then you need to start thinking about putting them into the unit. And I think we kind of get lulled with pancreatitis because how many people do we see who's like chronic pancreatitis and we're like, you know, I'm like snoozing halfway through your presentation because we've just seen the patients over and over and over again. Um, but true pancreatitis can be actually, um, you know, patients can be very sick. So I just 
want um, wanted you to keep that in mind. Very Yes, over and over and over again. And unfortunately, you just have to remember it. Okay, um, okay. I think, did everyone go? Are we back to the beginning? Juan, do you want to try the next one? Yeah. So a 35-year-old male comes to the ED complaining of right of bladder pain for two days. Left S area as follows. Total screen ability would have been 0.9 milligrams. AFC 1500, ALC 600, out class 80, life case 5. What's the most likely diagnosis? So Sorry about the typo. That's okay. He's, uh, let's see, 35. Uh, the AFC to ALT ratio is greater than 2 to 1. Um, Billy Rubin's pretty normal, out class looks good. I'd have to say. Maybe, maybe alcoholic. No, absolutely right. No maybes about it. Two to one is exactly the ratio they wanted you to see. So AST to ALT ratio greater than two is indicative of alcoholic hepatitis. If the ratio is less than one, that's more common with viral hepatitis. Okay. Um, and the other thing is the ALK-FOS is normal here. And so if you've got biliary disease like cholelithiasis or acute cholecystitis, you're going to expect ALK-FOS to go up as well. So that kind of steers you away from the uh, biliary tract. <clears throat> okay. Um, okay. Who wants to do question 12? Matt, do you want to try question 12? 65-year-old female two hours of It comes with a picture. <laughs> Pain is severe, diffuse, and progressively worsening. Diffuse blood pressure, 150 over 90. Exam demonstrates a palpable pulsatile mass. CT is shown. Hang on. Let me give you your CT scan. <coughs> Boom. There's your okay. CT. Keep that in mind. Okay. I'll go back to it. Okay, so which of the following is true in the management of this patient? Blood pressure should be reduced to a systolic of 100 or below. Sorry. Yes, I'm sending you a lifeline, uniting you into the blood uh, category here. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I finished this at 4 o'clock in the morning, so um, some of the typos are because <laughs> my eyes are no longer working. Okay, uh, yes, B is the right choice. Why? What are we seeing here? Other than stop looking at the arrows, but what else do we see on here? Okay, yeah, so they want you to see the AAA, which I think most of us are pretty good at finding AAAs on CT, but what they want to draw your attention to is that this is a ruptured AAA. Um, so it is no longer a, you know, four centimeter, we're just going to repeat a CT scan in six months kind of a case. Um, this person has a ruptured AAA, um, and the only thing that's going to help them is giving them a whole lot of blood and taking them to the operating room as fast as possible. Um, there is no evidence that controlling their blood pressure is going to improve their outcome. Although intuitively you would think, let's lower the blood pressure, like in head bleeds, right? Let's lower the blood pressure, let's decrease the amount of bleeding. But really, once you get to the ruptured AAA stage, it's just a matter of surgical intervention and transfusing them in the meantime, okay? So there's nothing hemodynamically stable about a patient with a ruptured AAA. If you observe them, the only thing you're going to observe is them dying in the emergency department. So, um, and once you have a CT, I mean, ultrasound is an excellent test um, as, you know, your initial screening exam. But once you have a CT that shows that, you're not going to gain any additional information with an ultrasound. So that's why that choice is incorrect. Um, yeah, and D is just wrong. So, um, yeah. Get them a whole lot of blood quickly and call a surgeon very quickly. 
Not one of those surgical consults where they're like, oh, we're in the operating room. It's like, oh, well, you need to get out of the operating room and get down here. So, okay. So uh, Dr. Stipe took care of a patient last night. I have no idea how this turned out, but it was like some abdominal pain. Oh, I have abdominal pain for two weeks, and I'm not very excited about this story. And um, he, like, finishes up his whole exam, comes up with his game plan, and the husband happens to arrive to the emergency department. And it's like, oh, and by the way, did you tell him about your family members? Six family members all died of AAAs. So there's a strong family history. It sort of changed Wes's approach to this patient. Um, suddenly she was not so mundane abdominal pain anymore. So there is a family history. Hypertension, males, high cholesterol, if you've had a stroke, if you smoke, and if you have um, peripheral vascular disease. So those are some of the risk factors. Um, I had a patient, I can't remember who I saw it with, not too long ago, maybe two weeks ago, who we were doing a CT scan looking for like a kidney stone or something, something not exciting. And this guy had a 4.5 centimeter AAA that was undiagnosed previously. So we sent him home, um, told him to follow up with his doctor. Very cautiously sent him home. Um, so anyways, uh, this um, the risk of rupture is... Um, greater when they get four to six centimeters. Surgeon use the magic number of greater than 5.5 or a yearly increase of 0.6 to 0.8 centimeters. That is their cutoff for elective repair. When they're smaller than that and the patients are asymptomatic, um, they just watch them with serial, um, uh, serial studies, imaging studies. Okay? So I always pick like five as a magic number. You really need to change your management once it gets to five. And like we talked about, the treatment is surgical. Uh, there is really not a whole lot else to be done. So when are you consulting? For when? Um, if it's a new diagnosis and it's five centimeters or more, I'm consulting. Could you consult for less than that? Absolutely, but I don't think they would do anything acutely. So in our particular patient, he was very well um, hooked up with his medical doctors, and he was going to be seeing them tomorrow. So we sent him with everything and told him that his primary doc could refer him to um, vascular surgery or cardiovascular, and they could manage it. But yeah, no one's going to ever fault you if you find it incidentally, and it's pretty big getting a consultation. Um, but, you know, they don't actually need intervention until it gets... 5.5, or I would say 5, um, or obviously if it's ruptured, that changes things. Um, okay, let's do one more question, and then we'll kind of wrap it up for the day. Um, who wants to go? Uh, Alisa, do you want to try this one? Sure. Which of the following is true regarding inflammatory bowel disease? A, toxic megacolon is more common in patients with Crohn's than ulcerative colitis. Perianal, or sorry, B, perianal complications are most common in patients with Crohn's disease. C, Crohn's disease always involves the rectum. D, erythema nodosum is the most common, uh, erythema nodosum is most common in male patients with ulcerative colitis, or E, anal fissures in patients with Crohn's disease tend to be located in the posterior midline. Um, Honestly, I'm really not sure. Okay. Any that you could eliminate? I think I'd eliminate E. Okay, good. I don't know why, but it just sounds like something I'd eliminate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it just doesn't sound right. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I would, I'm thinking I'd go with A or B if I was to make a random guess. You would have a 50% chance of being right. We do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we only can get feedback on real tests. <laughs> <laughs> you are on the right track. Keep moving forward. Good. B is the right choice. Excellent. I'm not sure if we phoned a friend or what, but you came up with the right one. All right. So let's go through these really quickly. Um, so as you guys know, ulcerative colitis is more from the colon up, right? And Crohn's disease tends to be more patchy. So toxic megacolon is more common in patients with ulcerative colitis. Um, Crohn's disease always involves the rectum. Nope, that's ulcerative colitis. 
Erythema nodosum is most common in male patients. That is not true because women get that more frequently. And this one, E, anal fissures. Um, so yes, people with Crohn's disease get them. So do the general population. And the general population gets them, gets them in the posterior midline 90% of the time. And of course, these people have Crohn's disease. So why would they be normal? They get them other places. Okay? So that is how we get through that. So Crohn's disease, um, uh, bimodal age distribution, 15 to 25, 55 to 60. Uh, bloody diarrhea is less common in Crohn's. They get the perianal fistulas, fissures, abscesses more than their ulcerative colitis counterparts. Um, increased risk of GI cancers. And um, upper GI studies kind of show narrowing of the small intestines and mucosal destruction versus ulcerative colitis, which is basically chronic inflammation of the colon and the rectum. Um, there's no small bowel involvement usually. They don't really get the perianal um, complications that our Crohn's patients get. Age of onset, a little bit different, 15 to 28. <clears throat> and they do frequently get bloody diarrhea and abdominal pain. Um, and colon cancer risk is 8%. Um, so just to keep in mind, I've had a couple of these patients recently, and we've gotten some interesting into some interesting discussions about the extra-intestinal manifestations of inflammatory bowel disease. So just keep in mind that these folks can get stones in other places. They get lots of joint problems. They can get ankylosing spondylitis. They can get eye problems. They can get erythema nodosum, and they can get, I had an interesting case of this one, pyoderma gangrenosum, which is this big, nasty, pretibial ulceration that's there forever and ever. And also, don't forget about toxic megacolon. Um, but here's um, erythema nodosum, are just like these big, red, like, nodules. They're not fluctuant. It's not like an abscess. It doesn't look like a bug bite. It just looks like this very red, tender bump. And they tend to... Hmm? I don't know. I think. Yeah. Um, I, I, the patients that I've seen, they've always been on the legs. I'm assuming you can probably get them other places, but I've always seen them on the lower legs. And then this is pyoderma gangrenosum, which is this just big, chronic, nasty, ulcerative, smells like a diabetic foot ulcer, and it's very difficult to treat. <laughs> All right. Um, I am going to um, stop there for the sake of time, and I'll have you guys, we'll just do the last three questions as part of your, do we still need to do your question thing or no? Okay. Yes. Okay. Oh, that would be wonderful. So we'll just do... Um, Question 17, 18, 19, kind of as a group. Are there any residents missing? How many? Five? Here you go. Can you pass it out? Yeah. Do you need any more Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 Okay. <laughs> All right. I love the hairless patient. How often do we get the hairless patient? All right. Why don't we? Um, we'll go ahead and just kind of answer these as a as a group. So, uh, which of the following is true about pilonidal abscesses? More common in women. More common in all of those hairless patients you see in the emergency department. Recurrence, <laughs> recurrence after IND is uncommon. Longitudinal incision should be main, made off the sacral midline or all of the above. Okay, yes, good. Does anyone know why? Yeah, you don't want it to all reaccumulate. You want to go off the midline. Yes. <clears throat> Question 18. Which of the following is true about upper gastrointestinal bleeding due to peptic ulcer disease? In patients with a normal GI uh, anatomy, hematochesia will not occur. 
Bleeding will stop spontaneously in 70 to 80% of patients. C, most patients will present, sorry, with isolated melana. D, the mortality rate of bleeding due to peptic ulcer is 25%. Or E, perforation may be accompanied by hemorrhage in 50% of cases. Does anybody want to take a stab at this one? Yes. Yes. Good. So perforation happens less frequently, only about 10%. The mortality rate due to bleeding from uh, peptic ulcer disease is uh, less than 25%. Uh, it's only about 6%. Um, most patients will present with isolated melanoma is not true. 50% present with both melanoma and hematochesia. Hematemesis, sorry, hematemesis. And in normal GI anatomy, hematochesia will not occur. That is not the case. How do you define hematochesia? Because I thought that was both red blood and black blood for rectum. Um, hematochesia, I always thought of as red blood versus melanoma, which is black blood. Probably on a giant spectrum. Um, by this author's definition. <laughs> oh. Okay. And let's do, let's have this be our last one. Question 21. Um, a 20-year-old female college student presents with diarrhea. She went camping two weeks ago, but denies any other travel. She's got seven to eight watery, foul-smelling stools or stolos. Thank God Mervis is not here, I know. Um, and generalized abdominal cramping. A test for fecal leukocytes is negative. Which of the following is the best management? So um, azithromycin, flagell, cipro, Supportive care or Vanco? What are you guys thinking? Hmm? Okay. Why? What do you guys think she has? Good. Who had the patient?